The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the journalist and writer Philip Alterman, whose new book, I was going to say his first book, but I'm not sure it is your first book, is called The Stasi Poetry Circle, the creative writing class that tried to win the Cold War. Now, most of us don't see a creative writing class as being able to win or affect the world at all in any great way. So winning the Cold War is quite an ambitious task for such a thing. Tell me how you found out about this this poetry circle and how you started to pursue it. Sure. So I think it was in about around 2015, I basically moved from London to Berlin uh, for The Guardian, where I, I now head up the Berlin office that we have here. And I'd known the story, or I'd, I knew that there was a, a poetry circle in this Stasi since about 2006, which is the year that the film The Lives of Others came out. And in the German news magazine Der Spiegel, there was an article at a time, which is mainly about the film, but it mentioned sort of in passing, there were some of the elements from the film that were actually real, stranger than fiction, and that there was actually, you know, that the Stasi had his own poetry circle. I mean, they meet once a month and read out their poems to each other. Yeah, this, the, the rough outline was, was in this article. And so in about 2015, I ordered up a copy of an anthology that the Stasi produced. I got hold of a reprint. So just as I moved to Berlin, I got a hold of this booklet. And I was so intrigued by it that I just wanted to find out a little bit more. So the sort of basic structure that I could ascertain from at the early stage was there was a group of Stasi employees ranging from quite young new recruits, essentially still in their training. Essentially, they were just young soldiers, as well as others were border guards, not all of whom were part of the Stasi, but some of those who worked at the important checkpoints were. Propaganda officers and people who worked in the, sort of, in the vast administrative unit that the Stasi had. They met once a month for two hours in a paramilitary compound in a district called Adlershof in the former East, and basically learned to write poetry. And they were taught to do so by a professional poet that the Stasi had drafted in to teach them how to write verse, what a sonnet was, what a cross rhyme was, what a metaphor was, etc., etc. Those are the basic facts that I knew. And I had this anthology, and I was just so intrigued by that because I couldn't really work out at first, what the purpose was. It seems, it seems so absurd. You know, the Stasi, a famously ruthless, supposedly efficient secret police force and something as, as vague and, you know, decadent, <laughs> perhaps, as poetry. You know, what did one attract to the other? Uh, that seemed like such a mystery to me. So that was in 2015. I started trying to Google some of the names that were in this booklet and I tried to contact them. To, to build up a picture of what this really was all about. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that central kind of question or, or paradox you identify, there is this sort of, in the wider picture, there's this weird thing, isn't there, that through the Cold War, I mean, sort of ever since really the 30s even, there's been this sense in which in the Eastern Bloc, poetry has been taken deadly seriously. I mean, you know, Akhmata was given a hard time, you know, Mandelstam's packed off to the gulag for writing poems. Whereas in the West, I mean, I was talking obviously in Russia particularly, but throughout the communist bloc, poets really were seen as at the forefront of politics. And, you know, in the UK or in America, you've got Auden writing, you know, poetry makes nothing happen. <laughs> you know, there's this sort of idea that poetry is apart from, you know, to one side of politics and is... Why is there that divide, do you think? Why did they take it so seriously in Russia and East Germany? Yeah, there's a George Steiner essay from, I think it's 74 or something, maybe a bit later, where he sort of tries to get around this. Um, I mean, it's almost like something he can't quite work out because it doesn't quite fit into our worldview. But he says, he's, he's slightly, this is an essay where he's sort of writing about how we've grown more distance from the written word and that the aura that writing used to have has sort of disappeared in the West. And, and then he says, well, you know, there is actually, I mean, a place in the world where people still revere writing with this intense, direct way, almost sort of like a form of worship. Uh, and he says, well, that's, that's the Soviet Union and the satellite states. And we says, we, which raises all sorts of questions about whether we have an idea that, you know, writing makes us good automatically and that or somehow people who write poetry have to be Democrats. And he said, well, that doesn't really fit. You know, there's something, there seems to be a sort of connection between intense reception of poetry and autocratic state systems. It doesn't provide an answer, but yes. So he, he saw that too. I think in East Germany's case, it may have something to do with the foundation of the German Democratic Republic, as East Germany called itself. I think one interesting fact that I discovered, I should say, as a Little caveat, I'm, I'm German, but I, was, I grew up in, in West Germany, in Hamburg. And so East Germany was, you know, a bit of a mystery to me still. And it's, it's something that I was much closer here in Berlin than ever was where I previously lived in, in Hamburg. So one thing that I learned and hadn't been aware of previously is just how central to the foundation of the East German state former poets were. So there were a number of poets, quite a few of them had been expressionists, then turned to communism, denounced expressionism, who had been in exile during the Nazi era, and then returned after the fall of, uh, of Nazism, and were, in some cases, given quite important roles in setting up this new state. And I think they had this, very much this idea that barbarism of the Hitler era was summed up by its attitude to the arts. So, I mean, there's this Goering quote, which isn't a Goering quote, but it's often attributed to Goering. It's actually from a play that he liked, which is, when I hear the word culture, I reach for my revolver or for my brown. It's lovely to see the original of that quote yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of run down, because I always know it's apocryphal, but I never yeah, know where it's, it actually it's, comes yeah, from. Yeah, I think for them, that was to sort of, I mean, the treatment of the arts for them was symptomatic of, of a, a flawed, a deeply flawed system, but it was expressed itself in, in this treatment of, of culture. So then in come these communist poets. So one of them is, was called Hans R. or R. Becher, who had all sorts of ideas that, you know, they're going to build this new state from scratch and culture is going to have a really central function. It's, and he had this idea of, of the Literaturgesellschaft uh, or literary 
society, which in his idea, East Germany would be a state where politics and culture would be equal. They would each have the standing of a sovereign force. It wouldn't be a case of politics controlling the arts, but they would have an equal standing. That's very um, encouraging to me because you know, very, literary editor is much, much more important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> Charles Exchequer. <laughs> so, I mean, others, there was a sort of gang of, of these poets. I mean, I mentioned before there were previously expressionists. That may have been quite significant in that they, you know, expressionism is all about great eruptions and great sort of almost irrational uh, feelings bursting forth but they had to renounce expressionism because the Communist Party didn't like expressionism. But it's almost it's like they bourgeois carried on... and individualistic. Is that the, the yeah, exactly. Sort of yeah. yeah, but they carried on this wow utopian, intense drive that they believed poetry could have. That it was an animating force. They carried that into into politics, almost. There is a, a, a moment in the book which which kind of makes you slightly stretch your eyes, where somebody maybe it was a chap you mentioned says that they think that the sonnet is a sort of perfect formal analogue for Hegelian dialectical materialism. I mean, yeah, I and mean, this, is, this is Hans Becher, who wrote a couple of essays about this, about the sonnet. I mean, he had this, yeah, quite idiosyncratic idea that what defined a sonnet wasn't any sort of formal technical aspects, but it was, it was essentially that it mirrored the dialectical triad of thesis, antithesis and synthesis. So that... Um, Is this a Shakespearean uh, sonnet we're talking about? Or? Yeah, I think that was his... I mean, so he, he felt that that was essentially what made the sonnet was a sort of a movement from idea to negation of the idea to some sort of conclusion. And he thought that... So this was an example for him of how he saw poetry have, having a really central function in the state that it could essentially sort of work as a guiding principle it could guide people into into this this sort of uh, central philosophy of the the soviet union and its satellite states so becker was i mean he was made culture minister he died in 63 but sh- i think his in a way his ideas continue to be quite influential what in one way was there was this scheme that the GDR developed in 1964, which was called the Bitterfeld Path, because it was sort of conceived of at a meeting in, a, in Bitterfeld, which is a sort of chemical manufacturing town. And it essentially was the idea that there would be a programme whereby, uh, through which the, the state would close the gap between intellectuals and workers because it wanted it wanted to be you know its utopian vision was that you'd have a, a state where there would be no such divide there would be workers would work the field in the morning and then compose poems or essays in the in the afternoon that's, that's from Marx, Marx, Marx's, yeah. Marx's great promise and something I think that I thought was you know it's interesting I mean they, they saw that as a great freedom in a way that the state offered and the one way to, so in concrete terms, of, in policy terms, how they thought they could bring this about was by parachuting intellectuals or writers into factories. This isn't, uh, I mean, it's, it's not the Chinese sort of forced labour for intellectuals. They thought it was a more uh, open scheme than that. But so these writers would, would work in a coal mine or construction company for, for a few months and would have writing circles where they would teach the workers how to write poems, but they would also compose, uh, write about working life and thus produce a sort of literature that was engaged with 
with working life. And actually, I mean, it has to be said, some of the most interesting novels that came out of East Germany came, were sort of born in, in those settings. So there's, I mean, there's one, there's a fantastic film, I don't know the exact date, but it's called Die Spur der Steine, The Path of the Stones. It's, it's about a group of carpenters who sort of rebel on a construction site. It was a film, I mean, it, it was already an example of actually how this program couldn't really be controlled by the state because it actually raises all sorts of questions about working life and, and the role of the state and, and, and whether you could have a union, which, you know, in, in socialist East Germany, there weren't meant to be unions. That was meant to be all handled by the party. Um, so uh, this, <laughs> this book that came out of that writing circle was then made into a film. But then this, I mean, the state was so worried about the story that they sent in for people to, to boo the film. Anyway, that's a tangent. The story of, of my book and the Stasi Poetry Circle is that, I mean, one thing I found out from looking at the Stasi Records archive was that actually this, the Stasi had its own writing circle, just like other factories and so on. As early as the 1960s, it was quite slapdash, I think, at the beginning. These were sort of just regular, I mean, well, irregular at that point, meetups where... I mean, it was essentially just a, like a little hobby for the Stasi, especially for young recruits who had quite a boring time at the beginning because they weren't really tasked with anything. They just had to learn a lot of military drills. A lot of them were just guarding empty buildings. So it was just, you know, you could say it was just a form of entertainment. Maybe it was quite harmless. Maybe it was nothing, nothing to it. And some of these poems that I found that were from that early period, from the 60s and 70s, you know, they're sort of sweet in a way. Some, quite a lot of them, you know, were written by teenagers or men in their early 20s, and they just love poems. Yes, there was um, a lot of, lot of kind um, of horny teenage Stasi people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're comical. Uh, you know, there's one in which a border guard dreams of writing I love you into the night sky with his searchlight. There's another one where, you know, it's quite clever in a way, I mean, where the poet describes a romantic relationship in sort of the terms of military rank. I mean, I think he's really talking about sex, but I mean, he talks about how he, you know, he yearns to be promoted to be a lance corporal of love. Uh, <laughs> and then the final line he says, you know, but I hope my love for you never gets nationalised or collectivised. <laughs> so, I mean, from that, you can already tell they weren't taking it that seriously. There wasn't in a way, it wasn't considered that something as ideological as that stage no so i mean incidentally you're you've got a lot of sort of very fluent and rhyming and scanning translations i mean presumably these are your own translations of these yeah these, i these mean poems. yeah it's, it's difficult i mean especially in the from in the early poems that were produced it's not great poetry it was in a way a bit of a gamble to say i'm going to write a book about poets that doesn't say bestseller for a start, but uh, then write a book about unknown poets. In German. And, and in German. And they are most of the really bad poems. <laughs> so that, that was definitely a bit of a challenge. But then actually, I mean, you could say that sort of, I, I feel, thought it was important to keep sort of basic meter and basic rhyme schemes intact because, you know, it's a, it's a choice whether you, a poem rhymes or not. But at the same time, I sometimes felt it sort of slightly washes it. In translation, you're sort of, you're sort of washing out the colloquialism sometimes and you're just you're slightly more focused on actually what the poem says. And, and that's what I was interested in, essentially, what, they were, what thoughts were bubbling forth in these 
poetry sessions. These bubbling thoughts, and I don't want to get too sort of harp on the sort of literary theoretical aspect of it, because there's a really fascinating story that runs through this. But, you know, on the face of it, one of the things that makes this so interesting is like, you know, the Stasi, you know, the East German surveillance state is probably in the greatest surveillance state, you know, up until modern China that has ever existed. It was trying to sort of abolish almost interiority. You could have no secrets from the state. You know, every position had to be very set out. And, you know, poetry in most certainly Western accounts of it has traditionally been about inwardness and about mm. Paremson, who you quote many times in the book, about ambiguity and ambivalence. Mm. So was the mm. sense that either they were working to try and create, as you once were, poetry as a weapon, that, you know, this was to retool a sort of non-bourgeois sort of poetry that be propaganda, or was there a sense in which getting them to write poetry would be another window into their soul which could be used by the surveillance mm. state? So I think that was the... That's explanation two and three, in a way, for why this poetry circle was set up. So the first one was the naive, maybe innocent one, that it was just a hobby. But then, so in the 80s, they, the Stasi suddenly draft in this professional poet, Uwe Berger. These meetings suddenly become more regular. It just becomes more professional. You can see that from the paperwork of, of, this, of this circle. And Berger was a really strange... I mean, he's not someone who is known even in Germany nowadays. I mean, he died in 2000, shortly before I started researching the book in 2014. And he's not someone who is a household name at all. He was, to an extent, in East Germany. But, you know, reading his poetry, I was just sort of quite baffled, actually, by the assumption of what his idea of poetry was, because it was exactly, as you say, the opposite of a model of interiority. He doesn't use metaphor much. I mean, he almost uses the opposite. They're the poems which are the opposite of metaphors. Where he's, There's one where he describes a, a plane flying into the sky and the, the trail behind it. And you sort of expect it to, okay, description followed by some sort of realisation or flagging your attention that this is a metaphor. This means it has a double meaning. They also stand for something else. And then he says, no, but it's not. This is just progress this is technological progress and this is that what we've achieved in the soviet union i mean so it sort of says it's not a it's not a, it's not a metaphor it is what it is which is an odd starting point for for poetry and he very much seems to have subscribed to this idea that i mean it's it's the it's the cliche that we still use nowadays that you should have nothing to hide <laughs> and therefore you shouldn't try and hide it in your poetry either so that was a bit puzzling for me when I this this character was such a he he was a widely published poet in in East Germany. Well, he this had, seems to be the odd thing that he was, on the one hand, kind of a big noise in the literary scene in East Germany. You know, he was, as you say, widely published, widely reviewed, very revered, but even contemporary reviewers seemed to think he was pretty useless. Yeah, I and mean, he wasn't a party member. Yeah, so this. This didn't, didn't sort of match up when you just looked at the outlines of his, his career. That, I mean, I struggled to find anyone who was sort of overwhelmed by his poetry. I certainly wasn't, but I thought maybe that's a, sort of, that's a, a change of the historical difference. But um, and yeah, he wasn't very unusually in a state in which by the end every sixth citizen was a member of the Socialist Unity Party. He wasn't. I mean, he'd been a flakhelfer as a, as a teenager, so he was drafted in as a, as a, as a young boy to, to defend Berlin, which is quite, you know, it's anyone who was drafted into military service at that young age was traumatised by it. And quite a lot of 
prominent figures in, in West Germany also had that experience. And I think in, in East Germany, when he was written about, it was sort of, that was the explanation for why he couldn't join a political organisation, is that he'd been, the sort of the rank and file of, of being drafted into the Wehrmacht had made it impossible for him to, to join another big organisation. He was a lone wolf. That was the sort of explanation. So at first it didn't seem to add up. So the, the remarkable thing really about the Stasi and the, what Germany post-reunification Germany has done with the Stasi is that they've opened up the, these vast archives of documents that the Stasi collected. It's not, like the, it's not like an open library that you can just walk in and grab something off the shelves. There's a, you, know, you have to file an application. It's meant to be for people who are spied on, but as a writer or as a, as a journalist, you can also apply to, to research certain fields or certain individuals. So... When I ordered up Uwe Berger's file, you know, it turned out that he, even before he was drafted into the Stasi Poetry Circle as a teacher, he was really an incredibly productive spy on other writers. And it really became very obvious that that's how he'd managed to build himself a career as a, as a writer, because he managed to sort of destroy his enemies or his <laughs> rivals with a stroke of a pen, you know, telling the Stasi, you know, it was really, really horrible what he did. He, Not a super sympathetic uh, figure. You know, he told the Stasi, I mean, you would ask a, a fellow writer, you know, oh, I hear you writing a big essay about Stalin. Can I have a look? Can I, can I read before, why you're still writing? And, you know, you just copy it out and send it on to the Stasi. And he would tell the Stasi what films other writers were watching at home. One of them was watching, watching a Tarzan film, which he thought was uh, worth reporting on, what jokes they told and asking why they knew these jokes that were critical. Uh, he even, I mean, then started really, you know, <laughs> he was sort of doing reader reports for a publishing house, but he would just, I mean, that meant he had a good supply line of, of manuscripts and he would just sort of do one reader report to the publisher and do a longer, more ideological reader report that he would send to the to the Stasi, where he would just sort of destroy these other writers and sometimes suggest ways to put them down in, you know, by placing reviews in the, in the press. So Berger was already a spy. And I think this is then the question. I mean, this isn't spelt out anywhere in the... There was no master document that I found which, which, which said this is what the Stasi Poetry Circle was for. But I think it's pretty evident from, from what happened in this, in this group that that this circle also, as you say, functioned as a way to sort of... Well, it functioned first maybe as a honey trap, because that's also how poetry circle functioned elsewhere in eastern Germany, they, as a honey trap for people, you know, for the quiet ones, that you couldn't... You didn't know what was going on inside their head, and they were maybe therefore a bit suspicious. But if you could bring them into a trusting environment where they wrote poetry, that was a way to get them to, to sort of X-ray their soul and to get them to exteriorize their hidden doubts or temptations or whatever. Well, there aren't so many women it. in the book, but one of them is a very good example of, of how that... Yes, this was a, a woman that I spent quite a long time interviewing because I just thought her story was remarkable. I mean, she's not a poet anymore, but I mean, she was essentially put into prison over a number of poems that weren't even published. I mean, they were just... And she, she was a schoolgirl. These were just poems she'd written out into a booklet and then copied into another booklet for some of her school friends. But she was... I mean, she, there were other things that the Stasi 
or the state didn't like about her that she was a she was a hitchhiker she was sort of reluctant to work which was a bit of a dilemma for a you know a state that offered you know claimed to offer work for everyone that then didn't quite know how to deal with people who didn't want to work but in the end she was prosecuted over these dissident tendencies in her poetry which is you know and they were published i mean that's the remarkable thing and it just shows you i think also i mean to to loop back to what we were saying earlier what was it about the about Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union that was so attracted to or had such an intense relationship to writing. I mean, that's the paradox. They were both, I think the state wanted poetry to have a really important function, but it was also terrified of it. And especially, I think, that showed up with the Stasi because the Stasi was a growing secret police, which when it was founded had deliberately recruited people from the proletariat. It had deliberately tried to recruit people without the high levels of education. It wanted, you know, fighters. It didn't want... I mean, there's a deliberate... Erich Mielke, the, the head of the Stasi, deliberately said this in a speech. You know, we don't want people who can just talk in a clever way about what they're going to do. We want people to show us results, and workers are, are better for that. But then it also felt that poetry and writing became something it didn't understand very well. And it became just incredibly suspicious and paranoid about, about people who, who wrote. And I think one thing to, that maybe also explains that is that one academic that I spoke to, or a historian, said in a way East Germany was an interpretative state because his authority didn't come from, of the, of the, of the party that ran the country, didn't come from elections, which were rigged, but it came from claiming to read or interpret Marx in the right way. So and then you had all these clever, oddball writers or intellectuals who said, oh, actually, Marx isn't, doesn't say that at all. He means something completely different. And that was something they were really concerned about, really, really paranoid about. Well, you also actually mentioned, I think he's a novelist, actually, it was Neumann, who's actually yeah. very yeah. successful and sort of very popular in the West, and that they don't really sense him because... They simply can't understand him. You know, he's a kind of modernist sort of figure. And I don't know, he's yeah. sort of Lashno Krasner Hawkeye of his, of his day. <laughs> but they kind of just have to publish him because they can't understand it. They don't have high enough grade literary critics to decode the ways in which he's being. Yeah, he was a really interesting character. I mean, I wouldn't say he was successful, like commercially successful in the West. He was, he got great reviews and he had sort of people who highly regarded novelists in the West who championed him. So he was he was published in in West Germany, but in East Germany they didn't they didn't out, outright censor him. They just it just sort of got his manuscripts just sort of got stuck in the censor's office because they just didn't know what he was saying. And I mean they really are I mean they are very dense. I mean and very cryptic. But at the same time he was he was a fascinating figure because he described it as he was went into into internal I mean it was internal exile essentially. He was trying to sort of had his own protest, underground protest movement that was purely happening in his poetry. But he wanted to do that from East Germany. He had no intention of, of moving over to the West, which would have been, I think, perfectly doable and, and easy for him. But he didn't, he didn't want, want that. He felt that actually his, his role, he said he didn't want, want to be a, an immigrant to the West, or he wanted to be a sort of constructive critic of the East German state from within. And he, in many ways, he sort of, he was still a prime example of that idea of the founding years of, of East Germany. 
of people who wrote and worked at the same time. He worked as a locksmith in a supermarket. And his first novel, it was called 11 o'clock, which was just the time that he would have his lunch break. And that's when he wrote for an hour and then went back to, to working again. So he, he wasn't a, when I met him, he wasn't a burning socialist. But I think it was something that he felt he, he had to do from East Germany. He was someone that I came across because the other function that the Stasi Poetry Circle had is that, at least in one case, it worked as a sort of training ground to recruit specialist spies, essentially. That was a sort of category for informants. The, the Stasi wanted to have informants with a specialist knowledge. And it wanted to send people into these writer circles or literary, the literary scene, the underground scene of, of East Berlin and, and Leipzig. And, and wanted to sort of try and understand what was going on. And at least in one case, there was a young recruit who joined the circle. They were a bit suspicious at first because he was someone who was torn, who also wrote... He, I mean, he, wrote, he was the one poet that I found really, really interesting and actually thought... Yes, he was the um, one who had he, some talent, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had... I mean, you know, I think he, he understood that poetry was about ambiguity and it was about holding several ideas in your head at the same time and, and balancing them. And he, at the same time, had a playfulness with language that I thought was really interesting, which is really hard to translate. But um, it just felt every one of his poems sort of seemed to hover on a tipping point where you can't quite see which way it goes. Does he, is he, I mean, I, I felt constantly he was torn between wanting to be a writer and wanting to be a spy. I mean, he came from a... His father was in the Stasi, so he was, had to sort of juggle a family loyalty with with personal interests so he was he was definitely from the records you can see that he was uh, signed up as as a specialist informant tasked with writing a who is who of the east german literary scene afterwards and i found out in a roundabout way that he had written he'd he'd worked as a taxi driver while he was an informant and uh, there was a report about this dissident or awkward writer neumann that he provided when he was driving him in a, in a taxi journey from from Berlin to Leipzig, so at first I just had this 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 report, and then I met with Neumann, who suddenly remembered this this taxi journey quite vividly because he realised that this that his driver was a was a spy, and he had his own sort of way of dealing with interrogations, which was he would just talk loads and just throw so much at them that they couldn't really process it into a report, and then. Because this guy in the Stasi circle fascinated me most from the beginning, had never got back to me and never, I mean, I'd, I'd done everything to try and contact him. But then Neumann wrote to him to say, I mean, you know, <laughs> you remember you once drove me in a taxi from Berlin to Leipzig in, in 78. Do you fancy going for a beer? And so we um, met the three of us and it was just a really fascinating meeting because I think even in the correspondence between this spy and the Stasi can sense that there was a, I mean, you can sense everything that I've just described, this sort of fascination with, with writers that they had as well. So I think Neumann gave him a copy of his book at the end of the taxi journey and then said, oh, I edit this poetry magazine. Why don't you, if you write poetry too, why don't you submit something? And so the, and then the Stasi became really invested in, in its spy actually getting published in this, in this journal <laughs> and kept on writing and said, have you, have, you, have you submitted that poem yet? Because, you know, we might... <laughs> in the end, it didn't happen because this spy that I said was always at a tipping point eventually 
proved a very inefficient informant for the Stasi and was let go. Or That thing of them, you know, you, you managing to engineer this meeting, but obviously it took a while to get to, to this guy. Is he Alexander? Is that his name? Or Alexis? He's called Alexander Ruika. Yeah, Alexander Ruika. How much, you know, what did they feel, the people were, you know, who were surviving, who you approached? Are they reluctant to visit that period because of trauma or shame or the anxiety that they'll be accused? I mean, are they all trying to lock it in a box, essentially? No, I think it's one thing that is was surprising to me while writing this book was just how different they are, actually. I mean, there is the, you can't really generalise very easily. There were some people in the circle who carried the sort of bunker mentality of the Stasi into the post-war years and are still essentially behind an impenetrable wall where you can't, they don't want to talk. They say that, that you know, it's over. I mean, and, and a number, quite a few people that I contacted said, you know, I have, I have no interest in, in this. And then there are others who are very open and are sort of, I mean, also politically, I think some of them are just, there's no sort of general rule that, I mean, there are some who are nostalgic for, for East Germany and are still staunch leftists. There are others who have flipped to supporting the far right. And there are others who are, you know, I mean... I can't gaze into their soul because I'm not a spy, but they say they are, you know, pretty well, they sound pretty much sort of committed uh, Democrats. I mean, it's difficult because you have, with every character that I describe in the in the book, you have, well, not every, but most of the key characters that had two, at least two perspectives or two documents. One is this, these Stasi records, which are sort of very highly detailed but not always reliable either because, you know, every, every officer or hand, Stasi handler who brought in a, a report wanted to impress his superior. So they would sometimes exaggerate the, the content of what the information was that was, was extracted. Sometimes they sort of give you the impression that well, the, well, the information they've collected is incredibly precise down to the, you know, which minute after midnight it was recorded and then you find a report on exactly the same thing which is just a different time also really detailed but it just doesn't match up so you so you have that record which looks incredibly scientific but it's also essentially unreliable narrators and then you have with the people that allowed me to interview them you know they're also to an extent unreliable narrators because you would expect everyone who's gone through a sort of monumental shift in history to uh, sort of settle on a, on a narrative that is not that painful to them. That's where you have to be sort of very careful about buying too much into... I mean, it's, yeah, you have to balance between the two accounts. I mean, one example, the, the poet spy who was brought in to teach Uwe Berger. I mean, as I said, he's, he's dead and I couldn't interview him, but he wrote a... He wrote memoirs, one before the fall of the war and one after, and uh, there was also the letters he sent to his publisher. <laughs> and so after the fall of the war, he sort of writes to his publisher 
and says, oh, please publish my, my new memoirs where I explain in detail my turn to perestroika. Uh-huh. <laughs> where, I mean, he was very immediately already started editing his, his own history in order to sustain his career <laughs> in reunified Germany, but that didn't work out. Writers over here are like that too. <laughs> Do anything. Were any of the ones you spoke to still writing poetry or still engaged with it? Yes, uh, some of them. I mean, I think the sad thing is, in a way, that the you know the the woman that you mentioned earlier, Anna Gret Golin, who was put into prison for over her poetry, she isn't isn't writing anymore. I um, mean, she did write a bit after. She was one of those people who were bought out of prison by the West and was then allowed to go into to West Berlin and write a bit of poetry then. But she's she stopped, and I think it's quite. I mean, to me, talking to her you know, just really showed just how corrosive this system was. I mean, that you know, there's some apologists who say that, you know, it was just, oh, every, every state does a bit of surveillance of its citizens. You know, we've seen it with uh, the NSA does it too. And, but um, I think the Stasi was, I mean, especially on those it identified as dissidents, which you know, didn't take much to, to be considered a dissident. It was an, a system that was incredibly psychologically damaging, and it created a deep paranoia that some people can't shake off. I mean, some people, I mean, Anna Great Gulen is actually sort of, you know, really quite sane, but I think in others that I've, I've met, they're really, I mean, corroded is the word. I mean, they're, they're, the Stasi called this uh, Zersetzung, which is sort of means biodegradation. I mean, it's a sort of scientific term, but it meant essentially, you know, I mean, now you'd call it gaslighting. It meant psychologically destabilizing an individual. And you would do that by, I mean, just you know, spamming their post boxes. You would do it by ringing their doorbell at night or ringing the phone at night. And you'd destabilize relationships to people that were close to them. And so, for example, in the case of Gerd Neumann, that meant that, you know, his mother spied on him, possibly his wife. I mean, there's some question marks over this. He, he certainly believed at one point that pretty much everyone in his family was spying on him. And I think that's something that is important. I mean, I felt it was important in a book that, of course, it's sort of comical, the, the, the premise. It has a sort of whiff of Monty Python, uh, Stasi writes poetry, but I sort of felt it was important to, for it not to be... Too funny. Absurd can be funny as well as serious. So to shine a light on the on the horrors of the Stasi as well. Shine a light it does. The Stasi Poetry Circle is out this month. Philip Alderman, thanks very much indeed. Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, um, don't, don't feel you have to review it. Um, and equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk 